as you saw by the video there, we are talking about marriage today uh, and really roles as husband and wife um, these next two weeks. Today we're going to be looking at um, the bride side, if you will, and then next week we'll be looking at the groom. There's, of course, going to be kind of uh, overlap between the two weeks, but today we'll be mainly focusing on <coughs> wives and their relationship with Christ, their relationship with their husband, etc. Um, and the, the kind of the big categories to get your mind around the way we're going to be looking at this is we'll start with uh, to, the, to the not yet married, and then we'll go to the married, and of course there's things that you can use in both, in both of those. And then lastly, to the hurting women, to those who are, are hurting, meaning uh, likely the in, in a lot of cases, as I counsel, marriage over 10 years, over 15 years, when it didn't go and it hasn't turned out the way that you have thought it would be, and there's some scars and there's some pain and there's some, some real things going on, um, just kind of a, a pastoral closing to you to, of some things that I think can help you in that, in that time. So uh, let me pray, and then we'll, we'll jump in. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we can get together and worship as a church. We're thank you, thankful that you have um, called us here and brought us here to be a family. We pray that as we look at your word, likely for all of us, husbands and wives, there is not going to be really much new information. If we've been in church at any time, or really if we haven't, certainly we've heard the things that the church has taught and what God expects from husbands and wives. And so, God, the main thing that I think we need is not necessarily um, the new information on what marriage can be and look like to come and kind of amaze us and give us a firm foundation, though that, that could be needed. But instead, for everyone who has heard these things over and over and over and knows what the Lord wants, God, that you would send your spirit and move in our lives and give us a deep desire to want to obey what we know already. We know that we can't do it on our own strength. We know that if we did, it would be for our own glory and not yours, and we don't want that. And we certainly don't want to stand idly by and not do anything until you finally come. We know that we need to move as well. But Holy Spirit, we are we're really desperate for you to come. So would you come now, Lord, and move in our midst and cause us to be obedient to the things that we hear that are in according with your word. By the power of the Spirit and for the glory of Jesus, would you do that? In Jesus' name, amen. Um, we're going to be in 1 Peter 3, uh, so if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open. Before we jump in, I want to say this. Uh, I've been married... 15 years now, uh, actually, Christy and I, we had a baby come in our 15th wedding anniversary. Our wedding anniversary was the 13th. We had our fifth child on the 17th, and the child was due like the 9th. And so we were thinking baby, that's all we were thinking. And so as it passed and went by, we looked at each other, both of us, thank the Lord, both of us, or I would have been in big trouble. We just had our 15th wedding anniversary. Was that one? Oh, that happened. Wow, okay. Well, I guess we'll just try to do something for 20th. Like, that literally just happened six months ago. Um, but anyway, I say that to say, 
Christian and I uh, are, as, as I've been, go- been married, as I say, for 15 years, um, I have experienced, like you, uh, a tumultuous time and, and some good times and some hard times and, and just every experience I think that most married people experience. And so I'm not coming by any means here as a pastor kind of prophet expert. I've got it all together. Here are the things you need to do. Just get in line and you'll have a great marriage like me. That's not at all. As instead, um, and I'll say this next week, especially when I'm speaking to men, um, I'm not doing that. Instead, I'm saying, hey, just like all of you, Marriage is tough, and I understand. So let's all say, we get that, we, we agree with that, and marriage can be difficult. So let's together, come together and say, we know what Christ wants in marriage. Let's sojourn down this trail together and say, even though it's difficult, we want to know Christ. We want Christ to be exalted in our marriages. We want for healing to finally happen. We want forgiveness to finally be exchanged and growth and men to lead well and women to have husbands that lead well, etc. We want that. So I'm just kind of prefacing everything I'm going to say with, um, I don't have it all together and I'm not coming as an expert. I'm instead coming along beside all of us and saying, uh, let's look at the scriptures and see what God wants. And together, let's pursue after that together. Uh, as I said, the structure today is to those that aren't married and to those that are married and to those that might be hurting. Uh, but before we jump in, I've just got some introduction, some introductory matters that I want to talk about before we, we go into that. So even though your finger's in First uh, Peter 3 and we're not there right away, I promise you we're going. I promise you we're going. Um, so some statistics for us of why I think uh, another marriage series is important. Um, we do them decently often here, and I think that they're very important for us to do. I don't think that I can ever talk about it really enough. Um, here's just some statistics for you. 49% of marriages in the U.S. end in divorce. Basically half of, of marriages end in divorce. 82% of marriages will make it five years, and 52% of marriages will make it to 15 years. So the general median average of marriages is going to last, those that divorce, around eight years. Um, Christy and I, I said we've been married about around 15 years, and my wife, she was just the most popular person in college, I guess, I don't know, but she was in like, it feels, it feels like I bought 20 uh, bridesmaids dresses, and there they stand in our closet still doing nothing. Uh, what do you do with them um, besides let your girls play dress up? That's all I know, but as, as we kind of look at all these things we have and remember all these different weddings that, that she was in, I remember about getting to age, or year eight in our marriage, and seeing Oh, look at that. Some friends of ours that we got married with and they were so excited. And now eight years in, seven years in, nine years in, we're starting to see even some of our own friends have, have experienced divorce. And so we know that it's not just something that kind of happens outside the church. It happens even inside the church. The, the, the church is no different when it comes uh, to marriage statistics. The church also experiences half, half of marriages ending in divorce. And so we know that it's a very important thing. Um, and I think that in the church, marriage is certainly under attack. Uh, and, and the enemy certainly wants our marriages too to be defeated. But here's something that I think that we should consider. Um, the reason why that I think we need to talk about marriage here, and we'll talk about it again when we go through Genesis 1 through 2, and we'll continually be talking about it all the time, is because good, strong, healthy marriages in a church are one of the greatest assets that the church has in regard to evangelism. In other words, we, if we have strong marriages and we... Uh, have men pursuing to be Christ-like and women that are um, 
help, being the helpmate that they're called to be in Genesis 2 and submitting themselves unto Christ as, as the church would. And, and we have these strong marriages. When people see that and they say, okay, you're messed up, but for some reason, just like we all are messed up, some reason you still stay together. There's something unique. And the reason why is we know that in marriages that husbands are supposed to reflect Christ and wives are kind of supposed to reflect and take their cues from the church. Whenever they see healthy marriages, we can say, well, it's not about me and it's not because of me. Instead, we're trying to put on display something greater, namely Jesus and his church. And the gospel, the good news of Jesus and what he's done, I think is better understood to an outside world. And so healthy marriages display the gospel better. Healthy marriages help people that don't know who Christ is understand who he is and what he's done. And it's one of the greatest evangelistic tools that the church has is healthy marriages. And so because, and you're never going to hear me stop here beating this drum, that we need to meet people that don't know Jesus, tell them about Jesus, and lead them to Christ, I think healthy marriages can help us do that. Um, just putting on display the gospel, not ourselves and not how great we are, because we all, if we say, well, I don't want anybody like putting on display my marriage, and I know what you're saying. And in a sense, I know what you mean, like, of course, because we have these issues that keep coming up over 15 years because you put two sinners to live in the same home that are generally selfish and generally want their own way and generally don't want to do something for the other person. And there's, there's um, some, some problems, there's some issues. But because of the gospel, we learn how to forgive, we learn how to grow, we learn how to have marriages that are Christ-centered. And that, that tells the world, it's not about me, but it's about Jesus. And you can know Christ as well. So I want to talk about some, uh, some things. This is not going to be up here, but this it still is an introductory matter where places are being neglected. Tim Callis wrote a little blog, six little things he thinks that where, where marriages are being neglected. And I just want to put this out as an introductory thing for us to all kind of think about as we get into marriage. He says that some of the biggest neglects in marriage in, in the church are, number one, foundation. In other words, there's a lack of real teaching happening in the churches where it's not... It's not like you need to smell good and take showers for your wife or husband. That it can't be this surface, shallow kind of teaching where it's all about superficial things. Instead, there's a lack of foundation. So one of the reasons why churches uh, or marriages are neglected is because there's a lack of foundation, lack of real teaching. Another one is a lack of prayer. In other words, in the life of the husband and wife, there's not a real devotion and faithfulness to pray fervently for their marriage. And when that happens... Um, Marriages are being neglected in, 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 in the church. Another one is fellowship. That there's not the proper time given that um, whether it's your love language or not is, is time spent. And that's my wife. It's lo- her love language is time spent. That you need to spend the proper amount of fellowship time with one another. You just need to be together as husband and wife often. And there's, that's being neglected. And because of that, marriages are under attack. Another one is communication. That And this is... I'm in the 20-somethings now when it comes to doing premarital counsel. And I think I've done premarital counsel for about 25 couples. And this is one of the biggest ones I say. We're going to talk about a lot of things, what marriage is, the roles of this. And we're going to talk about intimacy and finances and all that kind of stuff. But when we get to communication, I say something like this. All these things that we're talking about, these worksheets or all these studies or books we're reading, most of those things you're going to throw away and lose. However, I would ask that you wouldn't throw this section away about communication and conflict, conflict resolution. This is the most important thing that you, I, I need to, as I do this counseling, over and over to go back and read again and go back and read again. Fifteen years in, I still need to learn all the things that I'm learned about or, or I teach about conflict and communication. And so 
because couples never verbally learn how to work through issues and never learn how to talk about things and learn how to forgive and learn how to say things in not just explosive manners and not hold grudges, etc., then uh, marriages are being neglected because the husband and wife never learn how to verbally communicate with one another um, the way that Christ would want. Another one is shared interests. Uh, there's a neglect of shared interests. In other words, your wife or your husband has an interest in something that you find dreadfully boring. Um, and because you don't want to humbly submit and love them and, and take an interest in that anyway so that you can have time of fellowship, etc., you just let them go do that thing and then they, they, they build up all these things and what happens is there's not enough shared interest in your, in your marriage where you don't do things together because you don't care about the same things at all. And marriage calls us then to instead um, humbly be willing to say, whatever you're interested in, I'll be interested in, even though I would have never been interested in if I had not ever met you. But because you're my wife or my husband, I'm going to be. Even if that's sports, ladies, or even if it's, I don't know, whatever women are interested in. I can't pick something because my wife will kill me if I pick something that I think is dreadfully boring out loud. So uh, the last thing is... uh, no, everything she does is awesome, actually. I'm interested in everything she does. Um, so uh, the last one, the last foundation is this, is intimacy. Um, Callis writes that intimacy is the super glue of healthy marriages. He says it's the super glue of healthy marriages. The Bible says that it's one of the most indispensable gifts in marriage that we can have, where if men are not and women are not finding themselves continually intimate, then it's going to be replaced with other things, other substitutions and it is one of the best gifts that God's given us to not let our marriages be under attack and have a firm foundation. And so that, those are the six things he says um, that are great for us when it comes to marriages and, not, and having a good foundation. So the reason why I think this is important and just some kind of anecdotal stories that I can remember just over the last time of, of some of our friends have been married. We had, we had a couple uh, that we knew, you know, we hung out when we lived in Charleston. Uh, she was a youth minister at, at a local kind of church, you know, hanging out with the kids, etc. Got involved in ministry, and he didn't go to everything. He worked late and sometimes wouldn't go to those kinds of things. And all of a sudden, she found herself um, hanging out with other friends more and doing social functioning things without him. And then all of a sudden, she found herself um, having a, uh, an emotional attachment to another guy, not her husband, an emotional affair, if you will, um, where... She shared more things and had more things in common and liked to be around this guy more than her husband. And it eventually led to adultery and she, they divorced. Um, another one is that the wife, uh, the wife was with her husband and because he was addicted to pornography, she did not want to be intimate with him. She just thought, I can't look at him the same anymore. These are almost quotes. I can't do it because if I do, it would just feel gross and I don't want to have that in my life and so she eventually moved out, and then the majority of the time, whenever someone moves out instead of staying, um, it will end in divorce. Um, but another story that we experienced in seminary, uh, one of our friends, um, he was a community group leader, and he had an affair with someone in his community group, and he left to be with her, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But she said, I remember when Christy was talking to her on the phone, she said, the only reason I'm staying is because Jesus says to in the Bible. Nothing in me wants me to, wants to. But because of what I believe about God, but because of what I believe about he said in his word, I will. But nothing in me wants to, nothing. And then he eventually left and, and the church had to practice church discipline on him. The Lord eventually woke him up 
like Luke 15 and the, the prodigal son where he just came to his senses and realized what he had. And he went back and he went through the whole product of church discipline. They were reunited. And today they have four children. They've been married for a long time. And the gospel was put on display in that moment because we're all like that. We're all willing to go against God and what he wants and go and, and live our own way. But yet he forgives us anyway. And now they're married today and still, um, sure, they have their struggles. But what an evidence of God's grace. What a p- picture of the gospel right there. And so we know that those things can happen. So my goal then for you today as we're looking at this is for, as I talk to ladies, is um, wherever you are in the uh, marriage continuum, the marriage spectrum from uh, I don't want to be to I really want to be, but I'm not, but I am, and I love it to I am, and it's tough to it's, I am, and I'd rather not be if I'm honest, Fud. Wherever you are, I want to... Uh, one of my main goals is that I would um, so uh, present what Christ wants in marriages in such a way that you would want to know Christ more intimately and more deeply than anything else. And then because of that, that deep pursuit that you have of Christ, it would spill out into all these areas of your life where maybe your marriage isn't what you want. So operating under that principle is, is this particular verse, Matthew six thirty three? It says, seek first the kingdom of God and all of these things will be added. And that doesn't mean if you seek Jesus, then everything's gonna be great in your, in your marriage. That's not what we're saying. But we're, principally, we're saying, seek first the kingdom of God. Let Christ be your portion. He's promised that he'll always be with you and never leave you. And let's see what the Lord would do in your marriage. Let's see what he would do principally in your life and then how it would overflow into the life of your husband. In your family. So before we jump in, I want to say a couple things about marriage. First, that marriage is a covenant and not a contract. Um, in, our, in our life, whenever we walk around and have business deals and, and those kinds of things, we think about having contracts with people, but contracts can be broken. And with God, covenant, contracts could be broken, but covenants cannot be broken. And God sees our marriage not as a contract, but instead as a covenant to never be broken. And he wants just like whenever he performed the very first ceremony with Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 2 when he brought them together and married them and he put them together. Um, He wants our marriages to be one flesh as he pronounced that particular marriage to be one flesh. And therefore, because it's a covenant and we're united now and we are declared as one flesh, actually as one, that you, the, the ripping apart of two people that are now declared one is quite painful. And it's not God's plan. And so he wants us to be together and see our marriage as a covenant, not as a contract. And I think one of the greatest things we can do is ask ourselves this question. When God in Genesis 1 starts creating, and he creates trees and water and plants and animals, and he creates all these things, and then um, he also creates something as he creates man. He decides to create um, something called marriage. And I think one of the best things we can ask ourselves is, of all the ways that he could create man and woman and and put us here he decided to create and man and woman he didn't make us all the same gender he decided to create two genders and as he created genders and as he created relationships he decided to build or make or create this relationship that a man and woman could have called marriage he he decided to to give us something called marriage that we would be united together in a covenant relationship with each other and him and i think one of the best things we can ask is why do that like he didn't have to do that he could have he could have not created marriage and we could have related to other in some other different way that only God can create and make up. Like, why did he create marriage in the first place? What would be the point of giving us this, this marriage relationship? I think there's really a couple things. 
So if you write anything down, like you can ignore everything I say really. Well, don't. But one of the main things that I want you to really write down is this. And I think this is important. You might find this helpful because it's the purpose of marriage. Like why did God create marriage? There's a couple things I want to say. Number one is that he, the purpose of marriage is that you, man and woman, would be more conformed into the image of Christ. Or you would be more conformed into Christ's likeness, into holiness. No one in your life, if you're married, is going to help you see how sinful you are like your spouse. You say, well, that's terrible. That's actually a good thing. (laughs) That's actually a good thing. God's not going to use anyone more in your life than your spouse to help you see just how selfish and sinful you are. And that's a good thing. That's a grace of God that he would let you see that in marriage. Because when you're confronted with that, you have a choice. As a believer, do I want to honor God and do what Christ wants, or do I want to be selfish and not be obedient? And he's giving me these opportunities because of my spouse to say, I want to pursue Christ. So one of the first reasons why he's created marriage is so that you would be more conformed into the image of Christ. And the other reason he's given us marriage is so that we can understand our relationship with Jesus better. So we can understand the gospel better. I talked about that just a second ago. But as we understand that the husband is supposed to look unto Christ and realize that he's called to be like Christ, that he's willing to die for his wife, uh, his wife's holiness, to do everything he can to die to his own self and die to his own desires, die to his own needs and wants, and love and cherish and pursue holiness of someone else. And as the wife, as a husband does that, is willing to be the helpmate to guide him in life and guide him in ministry and, and come alongside him and submit unto her, submit unto him as she would unto Christ, then that puts on display to the world what, how the church and Christ relate to each other. And they can understand the gospel better. They can understand that one day we will all be saved by Jesus. Now, which means um, before we get into husbands and wives and your roles in relationships, I think that the main thing that you should realize is this. If you're not a believer in Jesus, then most of the things I'm going to say today might not um, be something you understand or might not be something that applies to you. So I think it's important that you understand while you can apply some of these things, you won't say to yourself, I just want to be like Christ. Usually non-believers don't say that. And so, for those of you that aren't Christians as we're going into this series, I want to implore you, exhort you, encourage you, um, with everything that's inside of me, say, you need to trust Christ right this moment, right now. Not because it'll give you a good marriage, but because something greater is at stake, namely your soul. Let me read something to you from Charles Spurgeon. He's going to talk about the need for us to be believers, and he's couching it in this Uh, analogy of marriage. This is what he said. Charles Spurgeon says, um, regarding the spiritual wedding of all believers to Jesus, the fact that whenever we become a Christian, we're then called part of the church, part of the bride of Christ, the same thing, and that the bride of Christ will eventually be with Jesus in heaven forever. He says, a great change has to be wrought in you, has to happen in you, far beyond any power of yours to accomplish, so you can go in with Christ to the marriage. Every person that is not a believer, should want to go in with Christ to the marriage. That means that we will be with Jesus forever, that we will be saved, we will be forgiven. All those words that you heard, let me explain what that means. Spurgeon says, you you must first of all be renewed in your nature or you will not be ready. We have a 
a corrupt human nature, and that corrupt human nature has to be made back to an incorruptible human nature, like Christ. Christ was perfectly human. His nature was perfect. So we have to have a renewed human nature to be more like Christ. And forgiveness, because of what Christ has done on the cross, provides that. You must be washed from all your sins, or you will not be ready. When we become a Christian, every sin that we have ever done or ever will do, we can, when we confess, he washes us clean and forgives us of all those things. And because of that, we're able to be ready to go in. You must be justified in Christ's righteousness, and you will put on his wedding dress, or else you will not be ready. Guys, you hear that, and you're like, uh, wedding dress? What are you talking about? It just means this, that if we're going to put on Christ's righteousness, it means that we are going to be forgiven of everything, that in the courtroom of God, he's going to look down because you've confessed Christ as your only hope. You've, you've confessed your sin and trusted in what he's done on the cross. God looks down on the courtroom, bangs the gavel and looks at you and says, innocent. Completely innocent. And you say, I'm not innocent. I know my sins. And he says, I know that. And the judgment and all the punishment that you were supposed to get, death namely, was put on Jesus. And now because of that, all you get is the perfection of Jesus. All you get is forgiveness. And all you now know is 100% righteousness or innocence or forgiveness and life with Christ. And he says that you must be justified and put on, when it says his wedding dress, that just means being washed pure as white as snow. That's available right now if you're not in Christ. Right now. It's not like we're going to sing Just I Am six times at the end of the service and make you feel real guilty and cry. I'm saying right now, you can believe in Jesus right now and be forgiven forever. The next one is this. You must be reconciled to God. You must be made like God or you will not be ready. Colossians 1 says that we are enemies of God, that we are um, walking in the, in the darkness and that we can be transferred into the son that he loves and that we need to be reconciled. And because of what Christ has done on the cross, reconciliation is now available. Being reconciled to God, having a perfect relationship with him is available in Christ. No child of darkness can go into to the place of light. You must be brought out of nature's darkness into God's marvelous light or you'll never be ready to go with Christ to the marriage and be forever with him. So as we hear this, the only exhortation, if you're not in Christ, as we're talking about all these different things of where you are in the, the marriage continuum as a lady or as a man, first and foremost, whether you get married or not, the most important thing in your life is being a believer in Jesus. Tim Keller says it this way when he talks about marriage, our marriage to Jesus. He says, Jesus loved, this is so beautiful. Jesus loved us not because we were lovely to him, but to make us lovely. There was nothing lovely about us, and yet he loved us anyway. And his loving us and our confessing and becoming a Christian then makes us lovely. In other words, makes us pure makes us innocent, makes us blameless, makes us the lovely bride which Christ would require to have. <laughs> That's just astounding. So, for those that don't know Christ, I would say believe in Christ right now and receive eternal forgiveness and eternal life in Him. Now, the first section, to those who are not yet married, um, and I don't like using the word dating, courting, whatever the right word is, you know, seeing each other on some consistent basis that's Christ-honoring. We can put it in this long thing. Um, and I know that there's, not, there's no verse in the Bible that says, 
and then Adam and Eve went to Outback, and this is what their courting relationship looked like before he, so I know that some of the things I'm going to say, because there's no, like, this is how you date in the Bible, so I, I don't even like the word, but here it is. Um, I'm going to offer, as we're looking at to the not yet married, some, some things that I think are helpful. I don't think these are unbiblical suggestions, but I think that if, if you're not yet married, these are some things you need to think about when it comes to <clears throat> um, dating, even though I don't like that word. Uh, and the principle still applies in Matthew six thirty three. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, then these things will be added. And it's not a promise that one day God's going to give you a husband just because you sought him first. But your life will be better if you seek him first, even if you don't get a husband. Um, so to the not yet married, there's just some things I think that you should know. Uh, and I think these are biblical. I think these are helpful things to think about um, when picking who it is. And don't let the pressures of your parents, if you're starting to get older, like bug you. Like, hey, you know, you're going to be an old maid. You're going to get married. You're going to give me some grandkids. What's going on? Get out there and pick anybody. Pick anybody that has a pulse. Just give me some grandkids. Like, just leave me alone, mom and dad. I'm going to find someone. Like, don't, don't give in. So I, I'm thinking that these things right here can help you uh, have some kind of foundation of what it is that you would be looking for. And if he's not there, I'm just begging you, don't settle. Don't settle for someone that's Mr. Right now. Like, if he's not what you need, if he's not going to pursue Christ, if he's not going to lead you well, if he does not lead you well now before you're married, he will likely not lead you well whenever you are married. It's just the way it works, generally. I know that God can just mess a man up, and, and, and all of a sudden, wow, look what he did. Um, and we'll talk about that. But the first thing is, to the not yet married, is that whenever you're looking for someone, they should be a believer. In 2 Corinthians six fourteen and 15, uh, we shouldn't be unequally yoked. You, no missionary dating. No, I'm dating them and telling them about Jesus, and one day they're going to come to know Christ, because all they're going to say is, you want me to be a Christian in order to date you? Yes, I'm a Christian then. Whatever you say, I'm all about Jesus. Me and him are homeboys. Like, they're just going to throw that out because they want to be with you. So don't do that. But more than just be a believer in kind of a name-only thing, they should also be a morally submitted believer or someone who really pursues after Christ. So someone who just kind of says they're a Christian, whatever, and just kind of goes through the cultural Christianity, that's not who you want. You want someone that whether they know you or not, they already are a believer and would be pursuing Christ anyway, not because you're kind of pushing them and they're like, okay, I'm following after Jesus. And you're like, come on. Like, you don't need that. You need someone that's going to go after Christ with everything they are. So not just a Christian, but a morally submitted, pursuing after Jesus believer, because he can lie to you for a pretty good long time and make you think that he's really a believer. And then when you get married, um, it changes. So that's why I don't like the word dating, because I, I think that um, until you're ready to get married, you shouldn't date, because generally you're going to mess your life up in a lot of ways. But when you're ready to get married, then you should, and you should do it a lot in groups, because how they really think and how they really react and how they're really going to pursue Christ will come, become a lot more evident in groups, because it's just one-on-one, they'll say whatever you want. You'll see it as they interact with others, as they talk about Christ, not with just you, but with other people. So anyway, uh, the next one is you need to find someone who spiritually moves kind of at the same pace as you as well. As I said, you don't want to have to be pushing him all the time. Come on, read your Bible. Come on and pray. Why don't you do anything? You know, like you have the same sin for 10 years. Like you want to have someone that moves generally at the same pace as you. And these, these things, I know God can do a miracle in the life of a man or even as a woman. 
But as a general principle, you want someone who moves at the same pace. You want someone that's theologically compatible. So wherever denomination you are, if he's over here and you're over here, then there needs to be some kind of middle ground that you can find where you can say, this is the kind of church we're going to go to. You don't need to say, well, he goes to his church and I go to my church. I had a great uncle and great aunt that did that their whole life. She just went to her Presbyterian church or he went to his Presbyterian church and she went to her Baptist church their whole life. And maybe that's the way they do it back in backwoods Mississippi. But that's not the way that God wants it, right? He wants us to be at the same church growing together in the same family and the husband leading and hearing and being submitted to the same teachings that they say on and on. So you want to be theologically compatible enough that you can find a, a common church to be able to worship at. The next one is socially compatible. If and that just means, like, if you want to live in Manhattan and she wants to live in Chester, that's, that's going to be a problem. Like, it could be a problem. So you need to be able to find a middle ground in that. I know that these, some of these things are not necessarily biblical ideas, but I think these are just helpful. You need to be ministerially compatible. So if he wants to be a pastor or if he wants to be in ministry or he wants to lead a community group at a church, he wants to do those kind of things, and you don't want to be a wife that wants to do those things, those are things to think about. Those are things to at least discuss ahead of time. And I put this last, and it's just the most obvious, but you need to be physically attracted to him. You don't want after five years you roll over and you're like, oh, what did I do? Um, like, you, <laughs> you want to be physically attracted to him. Um, and then also, just a couple things on the manner in which you date. I think this is important. I think you need to, two, two little things on the manner in which you date. You need to date with clarity. In other words, don't play games. Like, I'm going to call or text four days later after we for, first see each other just to see if they call or text me first, and then I know if they do, then I have the upper hand, and I'm the one that's like, da, 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 like balls in their court. Don't play these silly games. This is not Christian dating or Christian uh, getting to know each other until you become married or whatever the term. I don't have one. Um, instead, you should be honest. Don't play games. Don't date unless you're willing to get married and let that be known. I, I don't date unless I'm willing to marry. So if I'm dating you right now and I'm seeing you, that means I think that you're marriage material. So we're not playing games here. We're not doing the little phone text and who's going who's gonna to do it next. Like, date with clarity. Don't play games. And the next one is date with purity. Date with purity. Be the Christians that don't mimic the hookup culture of today. I've counseled, like I said, over 25 different couples. And it's, it's rare that there are couples that aren't dealing with this in some way. Christian couples that aren't dealing with this in some way. Be the couple that doesn't have the hookup culture. Date with purity. This is just an obvious thing for you, and maybe you don't know this yet, ladies. But if he doesn't lead you well in that before you're married, he is likely not going to lead you well in all kinds of other things when you are married. It's just the dead honest truth. And if he doesn't lead you well, you should not follow him at all. So that's to the not yet married. Now, to the married, and of course, those that aren't yet married, these things right here I'm going to say are absolutely something you need to hear. So to the married, this is right here in First Peter 3. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. Uh, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So to those who are married, I've got a couple exhortations right here from the text to women. The first one is, you can go ahead and put it up, the first one is that wives should joyfully and willingly submit to the headship of their husbands. Now, when you say submit or be subject, sometimes that can really be like a cuss word, like the bad S word. And you get a little bit nervous and you're like, submit, I don't like this. Let me just throw out a couple things for you. If this is kind of your first time hearing this, I'm going to talk about what submission doesn't mean and what submission does mean. But there's three times in the New Testament where um, they're talking about husbands and wives 
And all of them have the exact same pattern. In Ephesians 5, chapter, chapter 5, verse 22 and following. In Colossians chapter 3, starting at verse 12, I'm sorry, 18 and following. And right here in 1 Peter 3, starting at verse 1. They all have this pattern. They all speak to women first, or wives, and then they speak to men. And every one of those texts where they speak to women first, all of them lead off with something like this. Be subject to your own husbands. Colossians 3 says, wives submit to your husbands. And Ephesians 5, I'll read it to you, says, wives submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. I'm not there yet, but let me, let me read it to you. 522, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For even the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and his body is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, in what way would the church submit to Christ? The church should submit to Christ fully. Because he's Jesus. He says, in everything, so also wives should in everything submit to their husbands. So in the same way that the church should submit to Jesus, because he's Jesus, the wives should submit to their husbands, not because he's Jesus. So we're going to talk about what that means then. But um, we know that women, wives, should joyfully and willingly submit to the headship of their husbands. Now, I'm aware, and maybe you're not aware, but in Ephesians 5.21, right before the 5.22 where it says wives submit, in Ephesians 5.21, it says that there should be mutual submission between the husband and wife. So when it says that, this doesn't mean that submission is only the job of the wife and never the job of the husband. But what we have to recognize is that it's not the same kind of submission. So there is a submission of the husband unto the wife, but it's not the same kind. When we look at the example, as I've said, we're supposed to, husbands are supposed to look at Jesus. The wife should look at the church in a lot of ways. For holiness, look at Jesus. But in the way that she's supposed to take her cues and how she, her roles, are supposed to look at the church. So when we look at that, the church, we would say, yes, she's supposed to submit to Jesus. But we would never say that Jesus is supposed to submit to the church in the same way that the church is supposed to submit to Jesus. We would obviously say, well, that's two different things. I mean, he's Jesus. He's in charge. He calls the shots. So if he does submit unto her, it's servant leadership. And we see that he's willing to come and die for her and be the servant and be the king. But even as he's on the floor, knees on the ground, washing the disciples' feet, not one person in the room questioned who the leader was in the room. Everybody knew it was Jesus. And so we know that there's not the same kind of submission that's required from, from Jesus and the church. And so as we look at that to take our cues, wives, I know that we are supposed to be mutually submitted to one another. And that looks like servant leadership for the husband. But for you, it does look different. It looks like the church and how she submits to Christ. Let me, let me just add one other thing. I think this is helpful. Um, I'm not going to unpack it completely because we're going to do that when we go through Genesis 1 through 12. But um, in Genesis chapter 2, whenever Eve is given to Adam... She's called the helper. Now, this is important to remember. This is not after the fall in Genesis chapter 3. This is before the fall. Whenever God looked and he said, I've wired up the world the way it's supposed to be and the way it's supposed to operate. And if this this happens, if you live your life like this, you're going to have shalom, perfect peace. And this is the way that the world is supposed to work. And therefore, before the fall, wives should be the helpers to their husbands. They should come alongside them and be the helpmate. The helpmate status given to wives is not because of sin entered the world and now you have to be the helpmate. Instead, it's given to them before the fall. And so when we take this idea of submission, it's not some kind of punishment being delved out to you because you're the wife and you might not be physically as strong. Instead, this is the way that God has created the world and and designed it to operate. We know wives are great things. Proverbs 31 
Um, the, the proverb on, on wives, verses 10 through 12, it says, An excellent wife who can find her. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm at all, all the days of her life. Proverbs 18, 22, He who finds a wife finds a good thing. I mean, I, I can amen this to death. I mean, just evident in my life, my life would be a mess without Christy. I would have nothing to eat ever besides peanut butter and jelly. And I, I know educationally and where I am in life would not be the same. Before I met G, uh, Christy, um, even really Jesus, but Jesus using Christy in my life, just educa- this is just an anecdotal illustration. But before I met Christy, my GPA, not so good. As I met Christy and we were dating and engaged, GPA kind of raised. After that, whenever I was in school, married, GPA, like, higher than ever. <laughs> and I'm, I'm progressively taking harder classes. And now, even with children, GPA highest ever. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. There's something about the fact that you have a wife now, and when it, it pushes you to take things more seriously. Whatever it is, whether it's education or being a dad or doing a good job at your work or whatever, the fact that you have somebody that you're responsible for, that you need to lead well, that you know is kind of counting on you to not be a bum in regard to whatever this is, it just makes you better. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. It's so good to have a wife. An excellent wife who can find her. She's far more precious than jewels. So wives bring husbands great joy. And when they live out this principle, this exhortation in 1 Peter 3, that they would submit to him as unto Christ. And I'm going to talk about what that means. He brings him good joy. But when she does not, Proverbs uses verses like in 27, 15, that um, a nagging wife is like a dripping water. A quarrelsome wife... In other words, you ever have that drip in your faucet and eventually after days it just drags you crazy? Like, would somebody make the water get fixed? It's the same idea here. It says another time in Proverbs 21 that a quarrelsome wife or an agging wife, it's better for a man to live out on his roof than to have a quarrelsome wife. It's better to be out there being rained on and getting sunburnt and just living on the roof than to have a quarrelsome kind of wife. One that isn't going to submit. Kathy Keller, Tim Keller's wife, in their book called The Meaning of Marriage, which I can't recommend highly enough, she says, when I got married, I discovered that my submission in marriage was a gift that I offered, not a duty that was being coerced from me. So it's a beautiful gift that you can offer. So what does submission not mean, and what does submission mean then? I think this is very important because in a lot of circles, it's, it can be a bad word. And if you've had a bad experience in marriage or you know, you know one family member over who's not in, a part of this church, just your sister or your mom or your first cousin that you're close with or your neighbor that you love very dearly, you've perhaps seen um, the submission idea being misused. These are some of the things that it does not mean. Um, it does not equal oppression. Um, it does not mean that the husband is now in place of Christ that you have to submit to him over Jesus. You still submit to Jesus. And if the husband's trying to lead you into sin, you submit to Jesus over him. Submission does not mean that you have to give up independent thought. Actually, quite the contrary. Um, at least for me, I have to have lots of helpful thoughts or else this whole leading thing is just going to fall apart. The wheels are going to fall off the cart unless I don't have a lot of help coming from my wife. Um, the next one is it doesn't mean that you should give up efforts also to influence and guide your husband. Submission never means that. Of course you should use what you have in regard to influence and guiding thoughts that are helpful and, and wise to help the, 
The husband lead the family. Submission does not mean that wives should give in to every demand of the husband, especially whenever they're sinful. Submission does not mean, this is all from Wayne Grudem, but if I didn't footnote him. Also, um, submission does not mean that now she is of lesser intelligence or competence. Likely the opposite. It also doesn't mean that uh, she should lead, she should be fearful or timid. It doesn't mean that all of a sudden now you have to be mistimid and fearful and not allowed to do anything. Submission does mean this from Grudem. He says that there is now in the heart of the wife an inner quality of gentleness that affirms the leadership of her husband. And also that she realizes that submission does acknowledge that authority is now given to him and it's not the exact kind of mutual submission. That because Christ is the head of the church, the husband is the head of the family. Now, ladies, I realize that this is very difficult, especially if you're more independent. Um, it's more difficult. Or if you, maybe after you finished college or you kind of were dependent on your family and then you had a five, six-year period where you lived on your own before you got married, I think it's even more difficult to just kind of go from that natural submission to your father right under the natural submission or headship of your husband. If there's an elongated period of that, I realize that it's difficult. And I'm not trying to say, hey, just submit. It's no big deal. It's not these things. It's this. So go ahead. Like, I, I realize that you hear that in some, in some cases, it's very difficult to hear. So let me just offer up a couple things. Because I think, and don't take this the wrong way, I mean, I, I genuinely think this. I think that when you hear Ephesians 5, uh, 22 through 24, where it says, Wives, submit unto your husbands as unto the Lord. That when you hear the husband's calling right after that in Ephesians five twenty-five, I think that that calling is more difficult than yours. Give me some grace for a minute and let me explain. This is what I think. Listen to this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That's hard. So let me just kind of paint the picture then. Because I've never heard a lady disagree with me. If I say, if you have a husband that wants to love you like Jesus loves you, he wants to get up early and be in the word and pray and lead you in Bible study and say, I'm supposed to wash you in the water of the word, so I'm going to pursue Christ with everything I have. I'm going to pursue holiness with everything I have. When I see sin or whenever you see sin, always tell me, and I'm going to repent of it immediately, and I'm going to confess my sin to Christ and become more and more conformed like him. But I'm also supposed to wash you in the water of the word. So if I see sin, I'm going to come to you and speak the truth in love. I'm going to be gentle, but I'm also going to have prayed before it, and I'm going to say, these are the great things about you. These are the sins that I might see. Here's some scriptures that I thought about that can help you grow as I wash you in the water of the word and help you with these things. And I'm going to not just tell you those things and leave you alone, but I'm also going to come beside you and walk through this and help you go on in holiness and become all that Christ wants you to be as a mother, as a wife, and as a woman. I've never heard a lady tell me, no way, don't want that in my life. No way. Now, I realize, ladies, that's like the unicorn, right? He's like, he, that doesn't exist. Um, so thanks for painting that picture. That guy's not around. No, I realize that. But you would never, ever say no into submitting to him, would you? You're like, yeah, that's exactly what I want. So... I don't want to get too much away from next week, but husbands, that's what she wants. Pray like crazy that the Lord would help you pursue that kind of man. Pursue that kind of Christ-likeness. I know you're not going to do it perfectly, and that's why the gospel's so awesome. Ladies, he's not going to do it perfectly, and that's why the gospel's so awesome. And for you, as you 
Forgive him of his shortcomings. And ladies, you pray like crazy for his leadership and that you can submit joyfully to however he's leading you, even if he's not that. Because as it says right here in 1 Peter 3, I, I think this is just a great principle, where it says that even if some don't obey the word, if you have husbands that don't obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. You pursuing Christ, I know that that verse probably means that they can be won over to Christ and become a believer, but I also thinks it mean, think it can mean for that believer who's kind of a half-hearted Christian, that he can be won over to pursuing Christ with everything as you live that out yourself. It's not a promise, but it certainly is an application to be made in this text. That as you submit yourself willingly to the headship of, of your husband, that God can do some amazing things through it. If you don't submit joyfully, then it's probably not submission. So you want to do everything you can to submit joyfully, even when it's difficult. That's the first principle. Now, for ladies that are not yet married, everything you just heard is still something I think you need to hear. Like, prepare your heart for that now and pray like crazy before you even meet this man that God would give him the spirit of wanting to lead you and that you would be able to submit unto him. The next one is right here in verse 3 and following. It says, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of your hair, the wearing of gold. I'm going to explain that. I think it's more of a cultural thing. It doesn't mean you can't have braided hair right now um, or wear gold. Or the putting on of clothing. Um, but let your adorning, and this is one of the principles right here that I'm going to go with in verse 4. But let the adorning, think of that word as beauty. Let the, the display of your beauty, let the adorning of the display of your beauty be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how, and now he's going to launch into an example of what he just said in verses, uh, in verses 3 and 4, and starting in verse 5. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn or display their beauty themselves by submitting to their husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So let me just um, forego the explanation of that, of that Example, because I think it would take a long time and just stay with the principle in verses 3 and 4, which I think is very easy to understand, which is this. Ladies, the second exhortation is to pursue true, lasting, inward beauty, not only outward beauty. Now, hear that. I'm not saying the pursuit of outward beauty is necessarily a bad thing. I think it's actually a good thing. God created beauty. He's not anti-beauty. He created beauty. So he wants to us to appreciate beauty. And when we see it, be like, that is beautiful. And all things that are beautiful lead us to understand that Christ is the most beautiful. So beauty in of itself is not a bad thing, nor the correct pursuit of outward beauty at all. It's not a bad thing. But let's just be real clear here, because the first half of that sentence is, is explaining something. Pursue true, lasting, inward beauty, not only outward beauty. So the best question we can ask then is this. What is beauty? What is beauty? Because today, tonight, when you're watching the Super Bowl, the only thing that you're going to be told, ladies, that's beauty, is all external. Fight with everything you can for the rest of your life to look like you're 16 on the outside. And if you don't, you're not beautiful. That's all that's going to be told to you tonight, and that's all that's being told to you your entire life. So nothing from the culture is going to exhort you to understand what beauty is. 
So you have to fight. You have to renew your mind. You have to dive into the scriptures to realize it's okay for me to want to be beautiful. I know that inside of every woman, I think every woman wants to be seen as beautiful. By whom can be the problem or the pursuit of it to the neglect of something else. But it's okay to want to be beautiful. So what is true beauty? If we just look at the trajectory of, and that's a difficult word for me, trajectory of beauty. If we look at that and say, inward beauty and outward beauty. Which one is the one that makes the most sense to pursue after? Well, I am at the very end of my 30s right now. And so I think that in a general sense, we can say, most of us physically are kind of at our, our prime when it comes to outward beauty in likely our 20s, right? Maybe our 30s if God just gives us good genes. But really, the rest of our life, we're never going to look like we did when we were younger. We're going to get older, and we're just going to think we don't look like we looked when we were 20. I'm not saying you're going to get ugly when you get older. Please don't hear that. I'm saying you're going to look different as you get older. You're not going to look like you look when you're 20. And so the trajectory of outward beauty, you can fight against it all of your life, but it's just going to decline ever so slightly maybe and whatever. But inward beauty, if you pursue after it, the trajectory is upward. If I dive into that and I pursue after it, I'm not fighting against anything. It will only continue to go upward. If I renew my heart and I pursue after Christ, it will continually go upward. And so if we're just looking at that, which one makes the most sense to pursue with more um, reckless abandon? Which one makes the most sense? So when we're talking about outward beauty, it doesn't mean that it's wrong or sinful. I think it's just fine for you to eat right and, you know, work out and all that kind of stuff. I think it's okay for your husband to even try to get you if you don't eat right and to those kinds of things. But we're going to talk about that in a second because there's something really important I want to make sure I say about that. But in regard to outward beauty, the text does say a couple things. And this is for all ladies, married or non, when it says here in verse 3, do not let the adorning of uh, let, do not let your adorning or the beauty external that you have be the braiding of the hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of clothing. What he means there, so if we're going to talk about external beauty, there's some parameters in which Christian women need to think about when it comes to external beauty. Namely, that it should not have the braiding of the hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of clothing. So what does that mean so I can understand it? It's cultural, so it doesn't mean you can't braid your hair. Instead, at that particular time, those that did those kinds of things were known as more promiscuous women. And so the idea then, what should my external beauty look like? It should make it look like that I'm not a promiscuous woman, but instead I'm a modest woman. The overall way that I present my external beauty is one of modesty. And as it says, the putting on of clothing, that just means mindful of it costs. I'm not extravagant in the way that I do this. I'm mindful. So the overall external beauty that I have is leaning into the modesty realm and it's leading into what makes the most sense as a believer in Jesus in the way it costs. Because I'm supposed to be a steward of the money that God gives me to make disciples not look awesome. So, as our external beauty is pursued pursuit after, and I think that's fine, um, you need to realize that it's for your husband and him only. Your external beauty that you're pursuing after you're adorning yourself with when you're a believer is for him and him only, not for anybody else. So the display of your true outward beauty should be for him. Now, back over to the other thing. And I just want to hit on this really fast because I think this is important. Um, I'm going to talk to the ladies first in inward beauty and then the husbands about inward beauty. So ladies, 
you're told here to, as it says in verse 4, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Um, it just means you need to pursue with everything that you can lasting inward beauty. So if we just look at what that means practically. If you spend, real practically, in the day, X amount of time pursuing outward beauty, which is fine. It's perfectly fine. Proportionately, it makes more sense then that how much every time you do that, more time should be devoted to your inward beauty. If you work out and eat right and do all these things and concentrate on that for five hours per day on the external, but for 15 minutes or 10 or not at all, you pursue Jesus through prayer and the word, that's disproportional. And in your mind, maybe subconsciously, you're still believing that outward beauty is true beauty, not inward. And you're missing the this whole spirit of this text. So Christ wants you to realize with the same drive that you pursue outward beauty, which is fine, more so it's more important to pursue inward beauty. Christ-likeness, holiness, killing sin, being in the word, prayer, loving your husband, loving your family, etc. I think there needs to be a proper balance in that. Now, this is something that I've noticed, and I wouldn't have noticed this without counseling. Um, men, and I know, I'm not going to, I wasn't planning on even saying this next week, so I have to say it right here. Um, men, you have to be mindful of this, because subconsciously, you can, we can be the worst. Where if all that our wife hears, if all that she hears out of our mouth in regard to beauty is that we're talking about her body and the externals and the way she looks and she needs to eat right or she needs to work out or etc. And that she hears. And if we balance it with what, we, what she hears out of us actually leading her spiritually, leading her in the word and praying for her, if we never do that and all she hears is the way we look, then subconsciously we have told her and all she really thinks is, my husband only cares about my external beauty, not my internal beauty. That is bad news. That's really bad. So it's okay to do that. But you need to be consistent as well as you lead her and pursue inward beauty in her life. You need to wash her in the water. There's not one verse that says to lead your wife to a good, healthy body. (laughs) But there's lots of verses that say you need to lead her spiritually to grow and be more Christ-like. A lot. So I think we just need to have that in the back of our minds whenever we are leading um, our wives. So those are the two principles that we see is that wives should submit to their husbands as unto the Lord and that wives should pursue inward beauty over outward beauty. And now, the last thing I want to talk to you about is those who are hurting. Um, and <clears throat> for those that are hurting, nothing, uh, well, one of the best ways that you can work through this is to have other ladies in your life that you can talk to. Um, and I would just commend to you our Titus 2 Bible study where it's just ladies that, are, that will be happening in the spring. You can actually sign up for it right here at the, at the back table. I would commend to you to get in the lives of other women and let them be able to be your friends, be your good friends, and then that you can start talking to them about how life is going with you in regard to your marriage or your not yet marriage but hope to be marriage. But I want to conclude with to the hurting women because one of the things that's just become evident to me in being years of ministry is that these things I've just talked about don't always happen in the lives of women. 
and they're 10 years in, and they're 15 years in, and they're 25 years in, and they're disappointed, and marriage has brought some, some definite scars, and they're feeling and dealing with some very tough things in their life. They're hurting because their marriage is not what they want. And there's three specific areas I want to talk to you about. The first is anger. Special concerns for women, for the hurting women because of marriage. The first one is anger. Ladies, you could be angry and dealing with angry Anger in your heart because your husband has not led you the way he wanted. You, you thought he was going to. You thought it was a catch. And then you got in. And everything was great for four years, five years, six years. And then all of a sudden, he's not anymore. And when he comes home, he's like, how come you hadn't done this? How come you done that? And you're thinking to yourself, don't you even bring that up. I mean, I have been doing all these things that you haven't seen all day. And now, anger. You have it in your life. I mean, just you, you find yourself, the more you're around him, the only thing that you feel was, is anger some principles I want you to think about. Um, God has righteous anger. Feeling angry is not a sin. God has righteous anger, and it's possible for you to have righteous anger, though it's very difficult for, for sinners to have righteous anger. Generally, generally, we'll sin in our anger. Further, the Bible tells us, like God, we're to be slow to anger and abounding in love and mercy and, and forgiveness. So there's two things I want you to do. If you're feeling this, if you're feeling the pressures of anger boiling up in your marriage because of the years of hurt and pain and life scars that it's brought, there's two things I want you to do. Number one, I want you to tell God all about it. I mean, and I mean, don't hold back. God, God can handle you. Go and tell him everything. All of it. And the second thing is, and this is the tough one, I know, because God's awesome and he can handle it. You need to go tell your husband. You've got to tell him. There's a principle of why it's you tell him. Ephesians 4.15, speak the truth in love. Number one, you're going to speak. You're not going to do the silent treatment anymore. You're not going to hold it back after, you, after you've done all the years. You're finally going to speak. But you're also going to speak the truth. You're not going to under-exaggerate things. You're not going to over-exaggerate things. You're going to say things precisely the way they are. Coupled with truth from the scriptures. These are the things that I want you to do. But you're also going to do it in love. You're not going to do it with anger and judgment and yelling. You're going to do it in the most Christ-like way you can. You're going to pray for your husband. You're going to pray for the conversation before you go. You're going to come. You're going to say all the things that you know that you're responsible for. You're going to speak the truth and love and the things that you want him to improve on. And then you're going to leave it to the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit's going to change his heart, not you. He may take what you've done and use that to change his heart. But you've got to tell him. You've got to tell him. If we have a sin against one of our brothers, we're supposed to tell them. We have anger in our heart against one of our brothers we're supposed to tell him, even if it's your husband. I know that that's a real thing. I know that it's a real thing. And so even though I maybe not, didn't spend enough time on it in a sermon, and that might make you think, he doesn't think that's a big deal. I could have talked about that just the whole time. I realize it's a big thing, and I'm just saying, you need to do what the Lord wants. And pastorally, we're here for you and we'll pray for you and we'll be here with you and we'll walk with it through you. And you need ladies that you can meet, like I said, in the Bible study and that can help you with that. The second thing that's happening to hurting women in marriages that have been going on for a while where it hasn't been like they thought is there's fear. There's a lot of legitimate fears in the lives of women. They fear failure as a wife. They feel failure as a, husband, as a, as a mother. They fear the failure of 
being a, uh, uh, not a good wife, therefore they fear losing their husband, possibly to other people or just losing their husband in general. Some ladies just simply fear their husband. I fear him. He makes me scared. Some ladies are anxious about and fearful because of their lack of their spiritual, their husband's spiritual leadership. They don't know what's going to happen with their family and their children, and they're fearful. Some are just fearful of money. We don't know what to do. We never, ever have money, and we never spend it correctly. All these, all these things can bubble up into fear. Um, and there's a couple problems that can form with fears. Number one, when we're too fearful, we'll never, ever do all that God wants us to do in our lives. We'll never live out all the things that God wants us to do. The other thing that can result from fear is that we'll be led into sin, whether it's anger or lashing out or doing something crazy. Fear can be crippling. So here's what you can do. A couple things, or a few things. Remind yourself of God's word and all the things that he has to say about fear. Seek to please God over man. Remember that Jesus Christ is always with you. As he promised in Matthew 28, and lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Whatever you fear, the greatest news is that Jesus is always with you. Though you might have not anything else, Jesus is with you. Seek after God continually because he's always with you. And one principle from 1 John 4.18 where it says that perfect love casts out fear. Fearing your husband or fearing those things is legitimate. But ask the Lord to give you this indelible fear that you love that you never thought you could have for your husband. Like, God, I have a love for my husband that I never thought I could have. Like, Hosea loved Gomer. I just love him. It would make sense that I wouldn't, but right now God has put something in me. I just love him more than I can ever conceive. And because I love him, perfect love is casting out fear. The fear of things and the fear of him and all these things are moving away. Because I just love him. And only God, you can do that. And I just say, pursue after God and remind yourself of what he can do and live by that. Again, same thing. I know I'm not spending much time on this, but it doesn't mean they're not important. Here's the last one, which is loneliness. Um, The hurting women who are lonely. This, This is a lot more prevalent than I realized. You might have a house full of children. You might see your husband every day but you're just lonely. You you have people all around you, but no one lives, no one really knows you. You're in a crowd, but you're by yourself and you feel like that all the time. There are countless wives that feel that they're lonely and that their husbands, though they're married, don't really know them. Your husband could just be aloof. Your husband could be withdrawn. Your husband could travel a lot or your husband just could be overly self-absorbed and you're just by yourself and you felt that way for a long time. What can you do? As difficult as this might be to hear, I think one of the best things that you can do is never withdraw from him. Don't resign yourself to saying this is just how he is, so fine. I will just be alone and you can do your thing. Never withdraw yourself from him. Even if he's aloof and self-absorbed and doesn't know how to, doesn't know how to 
pull you out of loneliness and really love and be with you and have shared interests and fellowship with you and want to know what you're interested in and lead you well, don't withdraw from him. God, in a general sense, I can say this, doesn't want you to do that. Um, secondly, and this is, I think, hard to hear too, but in every relationship, there's sin on both behalves. And repent of the things that you know that you've done. It may be small. It may be minimal. But still, repent of those things and ask the Lord to forgive you and say, help me through this. These are the things I know I've done. And even repent to your husband if there's some things. Share your concern with your husband about his being withdrawn. If he doesn't know, things are likely never to change unless God just comes in and does something crazy in his heart. Like, you've got to talk to him. As I said, one of the biggest problems in marriage is the lack of communication. We have to learn to communicate with each other in a Christ-like honoring way, but we have to do it. We have to work through things. We have to talk. So communicate with him. Don't try to intimidate him. Don't try to manipulate him. But as your heart, this is lastly, as your heart is longing for companionship and longing for intimacy, seek it only in your husband and not other places. That can be with people. That can be with habits that are sinful. And that can just be with hobbies that are inherently not sinful. But don't pursue those things instead of your husband. Fight with everything you have to not let sorrow and not let resentment take over your heart even though you feel lonely. And let Christ be your portion in those times because he's promised that he'll never leave you. Even if you feel alone, you're not because you have Jesus. Now, I know that this doesn't mean definitely your marriage will turn around like next day. I realize that. Um, And I just want to encourage you that Jesus loves you more than you could ever, ever imagine. He's not angry at you. The reason why your marriage isn't the way it wants you want it to be is not because this is some consequence because you sinned 10 years ago and you're never out of it. That's not the case. Jesus loves you. You're a child of his. You're a daughter of his. And I just want to encourage you to press into Christ and to press into your husband anyway. We're going to have a time of response. And if you want to talk, I'll be in the back or... If you just need to sit there and pray some, I invite you to do that. However he's leading, maybe you just need to stand and all you can really do is just stand and sing out to him for being so glorious and being your savior and being your portion and being your husband as part of you being the bride of Christ. And he's your savior and you're just so thankful for that. However the Lord's leading, I want you to be obedient. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for this time. I pray that you would be with the wives and the husbands now as we think on everything we've heard and that you would um, lead this time for us and that we would give you all the glory for it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.